Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where we share our latest insights on recent developments in politics and policy in the UK, Europe and internationally. Good morning, uh, I'm Elizabeth Beale, the practice lead here at Global Council for Climate Change and Sustainability, and thrilled to be joined with Caroline Lucas today of the Green Party. So we're going to talk today a little bit about the politics of climate change and what's shifting around that. So, um, so one of my colleagues has called this the year we got worried again, and we've seen a dramatic shift in, in terms of here in the UK, but also globally in terms of action, and what do you think is, is um, contributing to that? Well, thanks for having me. I think what's interesting about the last sort of six months or so has been the kind of the, the confluence of a number of different factors. And here in the UK, obviously, we've had quite a lot of action on the streets, whether that's been the youth climate activists walking out of school. In fact, that's been something that's been replicated in over 100 countries. Um, but the moral authority I think you get when young people are literally looking into the eyes of their parents and saying, you, you know, you have let us down. This is our future that you're trashing. I think that's really powerful. We've had Extinction Rebellion, who extraordinarily have managed to keep, I think, public support in spite of being pretty disruptive on our streets mm -hmm. and bringing the heart of London to a standstill on several occasions. But I think that has helped to basically inject a sense of urgency into the debate again. The backdrop, of course, are the films of David Attenborough coming out far more strongly than he ever has done before about literally talking about the end of, of civilizations as we know it. We've got the the empirical experience of just how, how weather is changing now, whether or not you can say that's specifically linked to climate change. Nonetheless, it's certainly you know in line with the kinds of changes we'd expect. And then I think there's just a bit of hope out there too, where people are beginning to think, well, actually, this is solvable if we had the political will. And, and there I'd really pay tribute to the whole Green New Deal movement, uh, started in the UK, but certainly taken up with real vigor in the US with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez really pushing that idea of saying that what we need is a, a mobilization of resources that frankly we've not seen in peacetime before. Um, but that is the scale of what we need really now to be able to address this crisis. Mm. And picking up on that point, in terms of the, uh, when we come back to cost, so this is one of the areas that has always been used as a reason not to do enough or to say, you know, it will cost too much and we can't do it that quickly. Do you think now, also thinking about costs, and, and when you talk about the Green New Deal, that there's an opportunity to shift spending towards also around economic justice and dealing with some of those issues around the environmental movement being previously elitist or thought of something that only the wealthy could mm. make environmental actions. How do you see that playing out in terms of looking at some of the economics around climate change and, and who the winners are and who can benefit and who will mm. lose out? Mm. Well, here in the UK, we've just had a, a really important report from the Committee on Climate Change, and they were the group that recommended shifting from 80% emission cuts to net zero by 2050. And what was really interesting about their report was that they essentially said that with the, uh, the advance of technology now and the speed with which it's been taken up, actually the cost of achieving net zero, in other words, 100% cuts, is no more than it was previously to get 80% cuts. Mm. In other words, you know, the, the estimates of how much all of this is going to cost are quite often out because technology has moved much faster than people expect and when they're taken up more quickly then that in turn has the benefit of scale and again costs come down. So on the one hand I would say that uh, the costs are, are, are probably less than people expect and some people say well it's going to be 2 or 3% of, of GDP which in the 
great scale of things is, is entirely manageable. We suffered far more than that when it came to the financial crisis in terms of how much GDP was, was, was lost. So, so this is entirely manageable. I think the crucial thing is to make sure that the investment will be benefiting those communities who, you know, traditionally, if you like, in recent years, have been the ones who have been on the sharp end of deindustrialization, of austerity, and so forth. And I think the way that we can use the ideas of the Green New Deal would be to be targeting that new investment in the green economy in precisely those areas that, that need it most. And, and so in a debate we've just been having, you know, one of the representatives from the Renewable Energy Association was pointing out that offshore wind can transform the economies and societies of coastal areas that you know, perhaps used to be tourist centres in 100 years ago but since have, have declined and frankly there's no real hope or, 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 or kind of um, economic future that people can foresee right now in many of them. Mm -hmm. So the extent to which the Green New Deal and the response to the climate emergency can be recognised to have answers to some of those problems um, as, as well as posing challenges, I think, I think that's really exciting. Mm. And agriculture is a big one where we've seen a lot in the last year here in the UK looking at you know how might that be with, with the Brexit and a post-cap reality here. You've also seen it in cap reform discussions in the EU. Is that a sector where you see that there could be a lot of opportunity in terms of the benefits for farmers and obviously an area where a lot of emissions need to be cut from uh, meat and, mm. and uh, livestock production. So where do you see, you know, renewables is one, but what about mm. in agriculture? Where do you see that? I think that's a really good question because, you know, so much of the focus has been on, on, on power generation um, and, and it's let agriculture and some of these other sectors transport off the, off the hook in a sense. And I think it's absolutely right now that the spotlight is turning much more to the emissions that come from agriculture. I mean, there are different estimates, but certainly around 10% is, is, is a fairly conservative estimate of, of what the emission responsibility is of, of, of the agriculture sector. And I think there's a really exciting debate going on right now um, about the potential for farmers to, um, to be rewarded for the provision of so-called public goods. And I, th I think there's much more of a an excitement about that in the farming community and I pay tribute to the leadership of Minette Batters who, who is the uh, president of the uh, National Farmers Union here in the UK. Um, you know, she has been in the forefront of saying that agriculture needs to change the way it, 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 it works um, and, and I think there are some real win-wins there, you know, that, that, that we can see a way in which you know, farmers' livelihoods will be improved because, let's face it, it's pretty tough being a farmer right now and, and the average age of, of, of farmers is around 60. People aren't coming into the profession. They don't see it as a, as, as a profession with a future. Um, so I think the more that we can demonstrate that shifting to, to, to a much lower carbon agriculture can be rewarded through the kind of payment system and can deliver you know, a, a much richer mm -hmm. environment in terms of, of, of you know, the, the soil regeneration and, and nature and so forth. That's really exciting. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a way as well of, of reaching people that perhaps wouldn't be engaged with the, with the science of climate change, but are deeply interested in diet, how changes of diets can have big impacts. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of young people in particular are now moving to vegetarianism or even veganism you know, because they want to make a difference and they can see this as a really practical way of doing it. So I think there's a really interesting set of, of forces when it comes to land and agriculture and food that can really push this agenda much further. Mm. And one last question before we wrap up. I mean, is this one example too of how you can shift away from 
uh, just focusing on growth and GDP, where do you see the needed change there in terms of the UK direction that it will take in, in really redefining how it looks at uh, measuring progress? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, um, one of the posters that, that, uh, that, that you see quite a lot in the climate change marches or in, in Extinction Rebellion and so forth is system change, not climate change. Mm-hmm. And I think that sense now that the economic system has to change fundamentally, that you can't address the climate crisis just by adding on a few green policies to business as usual, I think is generally recognised. How we move away from a system that has been designed, if you like, to to simply produce higher and higher GDP, that is the measure of whether or not our economy is being successful or not, how you make that transition, uh, there's still debate about. But certainly having a basket of other indicators which perhaps tell you far more about the the well-being of your society would be a first step. And I think, you know, if any of us were in any doubt about the, the scale of the, of the challenge, you know, when you consider the IPCC report basically saying net zero globally by 2050, on current projections, the global economy is due to treble in size by 2050. So if it'd be hard enough to decarbonize one economy, one, one sized economy by, by, by 2050, then to do it three times over is going to be impossible. Mm-hmm. And I think however heroic you are about your assumptions about the possibility for decoupling uh, energy use from resource consumption, nonetheless, I don't think there's any example in the world where that is moving fast enough and, and in an absolute enough way to get us where we need to be. So these questions about about what kind of economic model is, is, is commensurate and consistent with climate emergency. That, I think, is the biggest question we face today. Mm. So lots more to discuss on lots our next more. time that we join you. So thank you so much you for so joining much. us today. That's Caroline Lucas with us at Global Council. Thank you. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website, www.global-council.co.uk and subscribe to our mailing list. You can also follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.